Welcome everyone to our seven-week Buddhist studies course on the Four Noble Truths. I think for many of us, this is this particular map or model the Buddha used is very central to the way we practice. And hopefully for those where that's not true, you'll find a way to understand the way you are practicing in terms of this map. Most of you know it was the first talk the Buddha gave where he covered the Four Noble Truths. And no matter what particular tradition of Buddhism that you studied or authors you might read who come out of different Buddhist traditions, they all use the Four Noble Truths. It's really one of the central maps. So just a couple nuts and bolts. We're cycling through a six-year curriculum. Amy and I were looking earlier at some of the uh, at the sign-in for 2004 or 2003 when this, we started I think in 99 or 98. And so the first cycle finished like in 2004. And somewhere in there we did the Four Noble Truths and there were a few of you in that class way back then. I think Dylan and Amy and a couple others. Patrice probably and Wynn. So we're getting close to the third round of the Buddhist studies classes. And uh, the point I'm making is this is something we want to keep revisiting. These different ways of looking at our mind that the Buddha offered. And the idea is, you know, the Buddha was a person who understood his mind really well so well that his verbal conceptual articulation of the mind maps on to our direct immediate experience as well. So not only did this person know the mind, but could articulate, conceptualize his experience in a way that then when we hear it and look, look or reflect on it, it sort of lines up with our own experience. And so it clarifies like supports awareness seeing clearly the way it is. So not forcing our experience to look like the map, but the map helping us understand the actual experience. That's when you know you have a good map, is not when you have to force it, you know, to be right, but it actually helps see and understand something. So you eventually, the, the clear seeing, the mindfulness the wisdom we want to be independent of any map. The map just sort of helps illuminate. And a lot of maps, what makes them really effective is they're illuminating or they're uh, bringing light, giving perspective in a way that counters the way our mind is conditioned to look at experience. So the map is specifically designed to counter our tendency that's why in Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings there's so much emphasis on relating to experience or noticing the impersonal nature of experience because it's specifically designed to counter the very strong tendency we have to take experience personally. My thoughts feel, seem so personal. Well, yeah, because that's our habit, our perspective is to look at thoughts that way, but it's not the only way there is to look at thought. There's another way to look at thought. 
So a few other nuts and bolts. We ask that people taking the class make a commitment to being here every Monday night, these seven weeks. Of course, if you have family obligations that can't easily be changed or business work obligations that can't be changed or you get sick, it's totally okay not to be here. Even if it meant or means that you're going to miss half of the classes, it's still okay to take the class. But when you can be here, you're committing to being here. So when it's within your power to be here, then you're going to be here. Otherwise, then we ask people not to take the class if you don't want to make that commitment. So there's a sense, uh, even in, I think you could say an integrity in the group, like we're all in this together, in the studying with this material together. That doesn't mean we're all, all going to be here every Monday night, but we're going to try to be here every Monday night when we can. And we're going to do our best to practice using the material, the teachings, to illuminate our experience so that when we share in big group and small group, we're kind of speaking from that direct reflection, contemplation, and practice. So generally the criteria is that people have a commitment to daily practice. That doesn't mean you're always practicing every day or practicing in a way that you want to practice. But that means you're really committed to daily practice. You value that and you're aiming toward that. And we also ask that people have completed three mindfulness retreats, even if it's just some half-day retreats. We just It's an artificial criteria, but if we want people who aren't just sort of dabbling, but people who feel committed to the practice. And just see me afterward if you have any questions about that. And for the folks who are new, we have a sit, optional sit at 7. Feel free to walk into the room up until 5 minutes after 7. But then just practice in the lobby or the community room if you're later than that. And then we ring the bell in here at 7.25 and, and everybody's invited to come in at that point. Every other week we'll have small groups. So like on the off week tonight, the first and third and fifth weeks, and the seventh week, Dharma Corps meets in the community room. And then on the other Mondays, so the second, the fourth, and the sixth, we'll have the whole building. So half of the, um, like around 8.30, we'll break into small groups of three. So that means next week we'll have small groups. And so as I'm sharing some of the material tonight, you might be just reflecting on some of the understanding that you have as you hear me talk because that may be something you want to share in your small group or something you want to investigate during the week that will lead to some you know, useful comments. And remember, the comments in the small group can be some of the better comments sometimes are just expressing how the material is challenging or what you don't understand or how it isn't lining up with your actual experience and you're not sure why. So you don't have to sort of toe the party line in the small groups or in the big groups for that matter. You're just practicing being real and authentic about how your practice is. That's what's really valuable in the small groups and just generally. It'd be nice for somebody to give a talk about Donna before we end. Generally not in the small group nights, so one of the odd nights, first, third, fifth, or seventh week. So if you'd like to do that, if you've been around for a couple of years and would like to do that, just let me know. Any questions about the nuts and bolts?
means we get to talk about the Four Noble Truths. And uh, I, for one, have found this particular set of teachings so valuable. And really, when people ask me, you know, what do you do when you sit or how do you practice, I try, this is what I try to do. I try to be aware of suffering and the end of suffering, like the Buddha taught. And in a way, it's the most straightforward way of practicing and to be honest, the most difficult way to practice, partly because it's simple. And it's like there's a lot of, we all have, I'm guessing, a lot of ignorance around the experience of suffering. For example, probably a lot of times, if somebody were to just ask, how are you doing, you know, and we felt like we could be honest, we would say, fine, as if we're not suffering. But that may be sort of sort of true, but not really true. So part of the beginning of this investigation is to appreciate with some humility how little maybe we know about the experience of dukkha or suffering or stress or the uneasiness. And a lot of people, especially from with a different set of teachings, teachings that might emphasize, you know, that essential freedom is already here, they might feel like this set of teachings of suffering and the end of suffering or the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there is the experience of dukkha, experience is limited, sense experience is limited, there's a cause, whenever our heart gets bound up, because experience is limited, there's a cause for that in our heart. The activity of getting bound up is caused by some way the mind is relating right now. And if it isn't relating that way right now, our heart isn't bound up right now. You can't have a bound up heart without that activity. And there's a release, that dukkha, that stress, that suffering, that problem ceases. If we don't keep doing what causes it, it just ceases, it stops. And there's a way of living, a way of relating, a way of being in the world that promotes that experience of cessation or freedom. So, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is in no way negating the essential freedom. It's just clarifying how to realize, how to wake up to that essential freedom. And the way the Buddha taught is there's a doorway to freedom, to release, to what the heart seeks in its deepest wisdom. But that doorway is involves acknowledging the problem, right? As opposed to running or moving away from the problem or fixing the problem even. Because the problem isn't the problem. The problem is misunderstanding the problem, taking the problem to be something it's not. We're taking life to be a problem or we're taking experience to be a problem that it's not actually. So then, for that transformation of understanding, 
we have to, that transformation depends on connecting to the problem. But we have, like I said, we have a lot of ways that have been conditioned for a long, long time at not directly facing, relaxing with, trusting the problem. Because we think it's a problem. You know, basically a boogeyman, a monster. So why would we turn toward it? Why would we say yes to it? Why would we relax with it? Because we're so convinced, we're arrogantly convinced that it's a monster and we should either fix it, you know, do some surgical maneuver on it or run from it, hide from it, pretend it isn't there. That's what we know. That's all, you know, so much, maybe almost all of our habit energy are all the different ways we run and hide and control and fix and struggle. So this process of deepening understanding, one way I really like um, understanding it is we're just doing our best as a human being to develop these qualities that allows the heart to collect good data. A very honest, non-biased, clear, non-judging acknowledgement. It's like this. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And they're just little data points that are getting collected in the mind. And at some point, we'd say, those of you who are in the class in the winter, we studied understanding or wisdom, right? So wrong view, wrong understanding, or understanding that's not skillful always involves the presumption of self, a separate permanent entity, me, to whom all this is happening or all this is being known. So if we're just collecting data points, mindfully aware, collecting data points, eventually all those data points just overwhelm wrong view. It just can't hold up to the reality of a clear, balanced mind seeing mental and physical experience just as it is, mind-body experience just as it is. Now, if experience, the direct, immediate experience of the mind and body were self, belonged to self or something like that, then those data points wouldn't overwhelm that view. So the practice, the practices that we do here that the Buddha taught you know, basically to cultivate a stable, calm, happy presence, balanced presence, in order to collect a lot of good data, that's the main mechanism for transformation. And the teachings, like the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, it's just doing two things. It's because it makes so much sense, I think, to me at least, then it creates a lot of momentum or motivation to pay attention and collect a lot of good data points. And it helps us collect good data because it points out how we would tend to think we're collecting good data, but actually it's skewed. It's data, 
see, or being collected with a biased view. So it keeps confirming what we already think is true. Like that great line, you know, if we always do what we've always done, we always get what we've always gotten, gotten before. Nothing changes. We may be going out with a different person. We may have a different boss. We may have a different body issue. But the way we're relating, it's the same as we did when we were in our 40s and our 30s and our 20s and our teen years. We're relating in the same way. And the circumstances are sort of different, but the greed, anger, and delusion, the pattern is very much the same. Nothing really changes because we keep looking the same way as if it belongs to me, it's about me, it refers to me, it's affecting me, it's us, you know, the sense, this permanent sense of self at the middle. Many of you know that uh, when the Buddha gave this talk, so his first talk after his awakening, then he hung out in that general area for several weeks just integrating the deep insight that he had had, just wondering, like, what do you do with, what do I do with what I now understand? Because it just seems so counterintuitive what he woke up to. How is anybody going to make sense of this? There was a real question in his mind whether it would be possible to share it, share his insights, to try to articulate them, to another person in a way that would actually be useful. So eventually he thought maybe it would worth a try. So he looked after, looked for his friends that he had been practicing with but had left him because he had given up on ascetic practices as an end in themselves. So, uh, you know, mortifying the body or thinking that the way to freedom is to not want to be alive, <laughs> not want to have body, not wanting to have to feed the body, take care of the body, not wanting to be confused or um, seduced by pleasant experience. So then the option or the idea would be, well, just avoid it. Just don't have any pleasant experiences. If you find yourself getting addicted to pleasant experiences, just stop it. And so that's what he had practiced for a while. And then he realized just makes you tight and, and harms your body. So he gave up on that. And then his friends thought he was getting soft and they left. But they, they were pretty serious practitioners, sincere. So he sought them out. He eventually found them after some travel and taught him what, you know, as best he could what he had come to understand. And so this is the talk. It's called Setting the Wheel of Dharma. Setting, the, setting in motion... Like what happened to me, then setting that emotion so it happens to other people. Because the Buddha did it without teachings, without anybody giving him some hints. right? So that's part of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is they do it all by themselves without a set of teachings. We all can't be Buddhas because we have a set of teachings. And the other thing that makes a Buddha a Buddha, I mean it's a technical term, being a Buddha, is that you can articulate First you did it on your own and then you can articulate what happened to you in a way that other people can have the same insight that you had. So there are many, evidently, fully enlightened beings over the centuries had the same insight the Buddha had but not necessarily able to articulate it like the Buddha. 
even if they have had teachings. So the Buddha, so this set this up. And we know it was a good Dharma talk because at the end, the last stanza is, so in that moment, that instant, when he finished his talk to these five Dharma friends, the cry shot right up to the Brahma worlds. So in the Buddhist uh, Buddhism, there are these many realms of existence from very gross beings to very refined beings. You don't need to believe that, but just to kind of have this sense that the whole world shook as beings realized that something really good was being set in motion. And we've talked in previous classes about the lawfulness of the world we live in, of cause and effect. And so when somebody does something that's really powerful, you know, we get the hair on the back of our neck stands up, right? We, we have a sense of history being made or there are going to be fruits of this moment, right? Some of you maybe have been around historical moments where something big was set in motion and there's a certain energy. Even sporting events where something amazing is happening, there's a lot of energy like, the confluence of events and how this will change. So I'm sure in our lifetimes we've had that feeling. So this is just exaggerating that to the nth degree. Like the fact that somebody was able, somebody who was conditioned probably a lot like we are growing up in a culture that teaches self and separation, and that just gets deeply imprinted into the mind, we're able to see, this person was able to see that, actually that view doesn't line up with direct experience. And to learn to trust one's direct experience above their conditioning. That is not easy to do. It takes a lot of confidence in experience and direct experience and willingness not to be thrown off you know not to sort of be tricked because one of the things and you probably see this already in your mind like just paying attention to our mind in a superficial way we see how clever the mind is in getting us to act out our habits it's um, I mean, we have to respect it. It's amazing. We can know that some addictive pattern is not healthy, but doesn't ha- doesn't necessarily help. We we can still, over and over and over again, act it out. Well, why is that? Well, the way the mind sees, the way the mind experiences, the coloring, the shape, the lens that the mind has makes it seem rational, even though it isn't actually rational. I mean, as a, it's so, I mean, it, it's a little bit hard to catch ourselves in it because we're always, in, to some degree, in denial. But when we sit back a little bit and look at our culture, it's just so obvious the kind of choices we're making as a people are not the right choices. Why don't we change? I was listening to President Obama's talk that he gave, was it Sunday, I suppose? Um, it was on, you know, how they replay the talk sometimes on Minnesota Public Radio. So I was listening at lunch. And uh, 
What was I saying? <laughs> oh, I lost it. Yeah, how we don't change. Thank you. And it's like, you know, just to be reminded, like, we, we, there are moments when we really see the injustices. We really see how inappropriate they are. And then we're busy. Or we, you know, life, and we forget. And we, we can be so motivated in moments, have so much clarity, be so clear. And it's just interesting in politics how there are so many forces in politics to keep us forgetful. You know, and he, he was mentioning about voting. It's like we talk so much about a democracy and yet so much of what we do and all of us together, not just the bad people with power that want to sort of oppress and keep the voting down, but there are all kinds of justifications. Like I see, I'm a, I consider myself, you know, pretty engaged, but it's hard to go vote. Right? Because it seems, first of all, I'm busy. And it, where do you even look to find out who you should vote for? Especially when you get down to the level of local elections. How do you figure that out? So it's just so easy to just, oh, forget it. And then, of course, we end up where it's very easy with those in power to keep manipulating things and making things happen in a way that supports those in power, those with wealth. And on and on again. So we can really see the denial, the distraction, the way greed works, the way fear works, how that keeps real change from happening on a cultural level, societal level. And so why would it be different within our own heart and mind? I mean... Our culture is just the cumulative expression of all of our minds. So it's really not this, not different, the two. So we want to respect how challenging it is for us to hear the teachings. There is dukkha. There is the way it is. It's relevant to see it. Because no change happens without embracing the way it is, without collecting moment by moment good data, being really honest, letting it break our heart wide open, which just makes the mind more sensitive. It's like when we're superficially thinking it's fine, you can bet we're in some la-la spaced out land, you know, But when we're feeling things deeply, feeling quite moved, both by the beauty and by the suffering, our own and others, then probably we're getting closer. One of the things that people who've been practicing for a while often say is like how hard it is to manage the sensitivity that begins to arise in the practice. I remember one person saying, you know, somebody who's really has a sincere practice and has been doing it for a while, they're the first to cry and the first to smile and the first to beam with joy and the first to respond and the first to let somebody else, you know, just the mind, the heart gets more nimble, more responsive, not the stereotypic like I'm above it all, 
um, this sort of Buddhist, equanimous Buddhist who doesn't really touch earth. And, uh, oh, that's just how it is, you know, causes and conditions. It will take care of itself. No, that's not been my experience. There are many people, especially some of the men that say how, you know, like myself, for so many years, I would never cry. And now it's relatively easy to have tears in my eyes, to be moved by something. Just being more sensitive, more engaged, more touched by what comes and goes in life. The other point that is often made when hearing the Four Noble Truths, these teachings, and the, from all the way back to the time of the Buddha, he said, you know, I normally, you wouldn't normally start with the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. You would normally start just helping people understand the lawfulness and basically make their lives work better. Oh, so it's not working well? You know, you don't like your karma, your destiny, your circumstances in life. Well, I'll tell you how to play the game right. right? It's a lawful game. There are rules to this game. So if you want things to turn out better, cultivate generosity. Don't cultivate stinginess because it doesn't work. Stinginess does not lead to happiness. It always seems like it does. The other night, Wynn picked up some dessert for us. You know, two desserts, two different desserts. She cut them in half so we could each have a piece of both and asked me which one I wanted. <laughs> you know, and I, my mind is so quick in these things. <laughs> <laughs> and wisdom intervened and I, because I knew, I said, so you choose. <laughs> but, but I noticed when I said that, <laughs> it's like, I know when. <laughs> She'll take care of me. <laughs> but that wasn't the, fortunately, that wasn't the first thought. The first thought is, I don't want to have to deal with that greed that will come up if I look at the two choices and have to decide, like, what do I want? That's painful. Now, someday when I'm more enlightened, I can maybe just either take the bigger piece and not feel guilty about it, or give win the bigger piece and take delight in that. But that's I'm not there yet. So I <laughs> so I just let it go. It's you decide. And I got the piece I wanted. <laughs> and I don't know if Wynn just she said, Well, this is on my side, so I'll just eat this I think but I don't know if it was strategic or not. But that's her business, right? <laughs> But it's just so interesting to look at the, that reality that stinginess doesn't actually work. Even though it seems like it will to be strategic, to be manipulative, to even be fair in a business-like arrangement. Okay, let's, let's do this right. How are we going to do this? Because in a lot of relationships, we, that, that is the way that it works. You know, we negotiate. But to... Learn how to let go. Because you see, this is how we, this is the most basic 
primitive way we learn how to go beyond self-centeredness is by playing with generosity. There's no, no deeper insight into the empty, empty of self nature of reality without first appreciating that generosity works and stinginess doesn't work. And he would teach, you know, this commitment, it's related to generosity, of course, this commitment to non-harming really works. And, and there's no end to this. Like we were just talking about um, racism in Obama's speech. And it's like uh, learning to commit to non-harming means that we're, we're willing to do that difficult work of seeing how the structures of our society harm many people in our society. And it's so easy to say, but nobody's doing it. Or it's so much better than it was. But clearly, it's so obvious when we look, it's not working. I forget what the number is, but you know, there are five to 10 million African-American men in prison or something like that. Do you know the number? It's millions. And then we have the highest incarceration rate of any um, sort of developed country. Now, that should tell us something. You know, what are we doing? What's going on here? And we're part of that. Or just how we use our military around the world. Our money. You know, our wealth, we as a democratic, supposedly democratic country, are making, encouraging this to happen. So this commitment to non-harming, when we take it up, it means we're taking it up to the nth degree. Like, it's joyful, it's liberating to take it up. This is, you see, this is the same thing as the deeper practice of opening to dukkha. The first noble truth is we open, we see dukkha as a teacher. So when we commit, it's a little easier to begin with sila, this ethical conduct. Okay, I get that killing is not good. So let me just take that up as an ongoing reflection. What does that mean around spiders and mosquitoes? What does that mean around my food that I buy and eat? What does that mean in terms of turning the thermostat up in my house? What does that mean in terms of the clothes I wear? and where I buy them, and where they were made. What does it mean in terms of my political involvement? What does it mean in terms of my... And you just go on and on like that. And it can seem like, boy, that would be really heavy to feel responsible for non-harming to the nth degree. That doesn't seem like liberation. So the Buddha would say, well, try it out. Like, Commit, take one little step in the direction of non-harming, whatever seems closest, you know, most interesting to your mind, then explore, okay, well, what, what can I do in that arena of my life to develop non-harming? And see. So you teach about generosity, you would teach about ethical conduct and this commitment to non-harming. And you see, it's only the self-centeredness that wants to hit back and wants to cheat and wants to misuse, you know, to sort of use sexual energy to get what we want, whatever that might be. So 
when we start looking at non-harming, we're really doing the, the deeper work, but it's, it's a little bit more available for us to work with the commitment to generosity, the commitment to non-harming. And then as our life just starts to work better, then the Buddha teaches about renunciation and the Four Noble Truths because now the mind is really ripe. It already has good data with understanding the value of generosity, understanding the value of living with more integrity and commitment to non-harming because we've already learned that restraint of selfing because it's only self that wants to be stingy and only self that wants to harm others. Non-self doesn't want to be aggressive. It doesn't mean that an enlightened being wouldn't do something that harms somebody, but it would, wouldn't be in order to harm them. It would be an act of compassion or, you know, it's hard to, hard to know what an enlightened person would do, a fully enlightened person would do. <clears throat> but it's so easy to think that I'm doing this, you know, how many countries, how many genocides were done in order for some supposedly good reason. Well, we need to do these. These people are bad. They're evil or they're whatever. So we really develop this understanding of the goodness of dana, generosity, the goodness of non-harming, and then we're ripe, and the Buddha says, okay, now begin to appreciate that even though your life is working a lot better now, that you're more generous, less stingy, more kind, more committed to non-harming, less aggressive, less passive-aggressive, less using our words to put down other people, anybody. And we're feeling like things are working, people trust us, we're loved, we love, our relationships are more harmonious. And then the Buddha would start to teach how limit, like to really look at, now that our life is working relatively well, to look at the limitations of even this life that's working relatively well. And this is this powerful paradigm shift that it would be nice to emphasize for your small groups next week. And it's the Buddha with this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. He's pointing to a radical shift in our relationship to sense experience. Because as an ordinary human being, and I was just talking about this on the weekly practice groups, it's interesting how the topics have aligned what I covered on Sunday and we'll on, on Wednesday evening too, that the habit we have, the very deep habit we have is that my happiness is a function of my experience. So we always are looking towards sense experience for our happiness, feeling comfortable in our body, feeling warm, feeling well-fed, feeling socially um, you know, protected or in wholesome relationships, having good information, you know, having nice thoughts. So even on that level, that level of sense experience of thought, of sound, of sight, of smell, of taste, of touch, if we could just get those six things organized just right, I'd be really happy. So what the Buddha is saying that 
Yeah, sometimes when things are just right, they're all pleasant. The sights are pleasant, the sounds are pleasant, the touches are pleasant, the smells and tastes are pleasant, and the thoughts are pleasant, and experience is pleasant. And the Buddha would not deny. He says, yeah, sometimes it's really pleasant. But if we, if the mind is steady and we really honestly look at that, we realize that there's some uneasiness even in those perfect moments, let alone the less perfect moments. Because on some level, the mind understands that that coming together of all that pleasantness, it's fragile, it's tenuous, it won't always be that way. And, and even though we may be not consciously acknowledging the ephemeralness of those pleasant moments that we have, on some level the mind knows. And because it knows that, it's tight. It doesn't really want it to change. Or if it is going to change, it wants it to get even better, which is also tight. Needing the moment to be even better is tight. Fearing that it's going to go away is tight. So then the Buddha, so now remember, life is working pretty well. We understand the value of generosity, not because we think we should be generous, but because we really see how it makes us happy. Same with this living a life of integrity and commitment to non-harming. And then the Buddha says, okay, now start paying attention all day long, as many moments as possible. Notice that this experience you're having right now, you could notice, we could notice many things about what's happening right now. But the Buddha would say, notice it's limited. Notice that this moment, like this one right now, notice that it's actually unsatisfying or unsatisfactory. It's not, it's not really taking care of us in, in a kind of a resonant, fulfilling way, right? Is anybody getting perfectly sated by this experience? So, and we can, and then, so that's just one data point. And this is the data now we're being asked to collect. So, this is the difference between an ordinary human being and an ordinary human being that has heard the teachings of someone like the Buddha. Because he's telling us, here's where you want to collect, this, this is how you want to collect your data. You want to, when you're feeling pretty settled in life, not overwhelmed, you have some basic values that really work for you in the long run, like generosity and a commitment to non-harming, then start collecting data points by noticing how even the nice moments, as well as all the others, noticing that they're limited, that they're unsatisfying, that they're not really fulfilling the heart in a meaningful, lasting way. Keep noticing that. You see, that's counter our intuition because it seems like it would be morbid to do that, to keep noticing that this moment is limited. But it would only be morbid is if the conclusion of that was, okay, I'm out of here. Right? You know, the life, so you can't really have lasting, meaningful happiness, so why bother existing? And so, but see, even that desire to not be here is also stressful. And this is where we want to keep an open mind that you don't get off, the Buddha calls it the wheel, you know, the, the wheel of becoming is how it's talked about in Theravada Buddhism. 
You don't get off the wheel of becoming by dying. Right? That mind stream just continues on in some fashion. So, I don't know. I can't prove that. But it makes sense and it certainly seems skillful to have an open mind about that because it makes the mind more interested in resolving the problem right here and now. Not just saying, oh God, if experience isn't going to really deliver happiness, why bother trying? Now most of us still think, let's just be honest, most of the time we think experience will deliver. On our ride over here today, before Wynn's yoga class, you know, (laughs) we were just being both busy people, both sort of lamenting like, well, this is all there is, right? It's not about getting to that place where all this work then leads to this place where finally we're happy. Isn't that the kind of idea that we generally work with? I'm working hard in order to get to that moment when I'll be happy? See, this is the delusion of thinking that happiness comes from experience. We're just not there yet, but we're getting there. And it, and it, remember, it's totally understandable we have this belief because there are results. There, there can be more pleasantness with certain actions. But it's still stressful. We're not perfectly content. We're not getting perfect contentment even if we're fortunate enough to set in motion positive results as the years go by. So we might accumulate wealth. We might accumulate a set of good friends. We might do good acts in the world that we then feel good about when we think about them. So we might do all those sort of things we associate with a good life, but the heart is still going to be uneasy because it's not fully content. Whatever we've set in motion can't be owned by a self. And the self is frustrated by that because it wants something it can really own. But it can't. And that's the basic existential problem. So then once we start uh, being interested in the possibility of that being true or the way to go, then the Buddha would say, okay, so start collecting data points. You interested in this? The next step is to start collecting data points. And so these are the three insights, and we'll talk more about this next week, that are associated with the first noble truth. There is the limited, uncertain, insecure nature of experience, and it's unsatisfying. This, the truth of experience is that it's limited and unsatisfying. Any experience, even the really good ones, this is relevant. This should be understood. This is a teacher for us. It isn't a problem to deny or a problem to fix. It's something to embrace. That's why Stephen Batchelor sums up, I read this, not from him, somebody was quoting him, so I'm assuming it's true. But he referred to the Four Noble Truths as embrace, let go, stop, and act. And I really, it's kind of a nice version of the have you read that, Bob? In his what book is it in? Do you know? Oh, it's in that book. I read that book. Oh, oh, great. Yeah, maybe. May do you have that link? Did you send that to me? 
I'll, I'll, I'll get it up on, on our, uh, th- um, our webpage for others to read, because that might be good for this. I think I did read it. I can't remember. My, anyway, uh, it might be a good article. But anyway, so the Four Noble Truths, again, embrace. So specifically, he's talking about embracing the way it is and embracing the limited, unsatisfying nature of the way it is. And then let go. Not so much you let go, but notice the letting go. Notice what that embracing, it leads to letting go. The mind is letting go of expecting experience to be something that it can't be. We only let go of attachment or the identification or the wrong idea that experience is going to make me happy. So we're clinging to it. The expectation that some experience is going to make me happy is the subtlest level of dukkha. So that's let go of. Stop means stop doing what we've been doing, right? So it's really, it's the um, continuity of the not clinging. We're stopping the clinging, not picking it up again, and then act. So we are inspired by those moments of cessation of freedom, inspired like a lot of energy to live the life that leads to embracing things as they are, the moment as it is. So Because it's not easy to do that. So it, we need the inspiration from, uh, to sort of allow us to act. The Buddha says, Seeking satisfaction in the world, practitioners, I had pursued my way. That satisfaction, that happiness in the world, I found, right? Sense experience, that pleasantness of sense experience. Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. So like I said, he never dismissed the truth or the fact that there's real pleasure. Then he goes on, seeking for misery in the world, practitioners, I have pursued my way. I did my practice. That misery in the world I found. Insofar as misery exists in the world, the unsatisfactory, the uncertain, insecure nature of experience is there. Insofar that it's there, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Seeking for the escape for the, from the world, practitioners. I pursued my way. That escape from the world of suffering I found. Insofar as an escape from the world of suffering exists, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached to the world. Of course there's pleasure. That's why we're attached. If there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be repelled by the world. Right? We wouldn't be looking for another way. We would just be pursuing haagen and interesting media and fun interactions with other people. If there were no escape from the world, beings could not escape therefrom, right? If there were no escape, we wouldn't feel intuitively that there might be something to these teachings, right? And we, would, we wouldn't be willing to stick it out because it's not easy to stick it out. There's so many good reasons to get distracted, right? To just keep doing what we always do. It's not easy. I mean, we're pretty motivated, and for us really motivated people, it's not easy to make this the top priority. We always think something else should be the top priority. 
and we keep making decisions that lead to other things being the top priority because we always think we're going to get to that place. Like for us as practitioners, instead of thinking we're going to get to that wonderful place where we have the perfect house, we think we're going to get to that wonderful place where we can be the practitioner we've always wanted to be. And then I'll do my work. You know, Instead of doing the work now, we think, I'm going to get it all together so I can do my work. Of course, that day never appears. <laughs> I wanted to save a few minutes. and Many of you have been studying and reflecting on the Four Noble Truths for a long time. We have about eight minutes. It would be nice to hear from, of course, any questions that you have about what I've said, but your own reflections, especially in the first part of the Four Noble Truths, as we look at this truth, there is uneasiness, there is uncertainty, there is unsatisfactoriness in experience. This is not a problem. This is our teacher. It needs to be embraced fully. Anything come to mind? Experiences from your life. Yeah, Rebecca. Just one thing that I've experienced in this is during the embrace part, when I have the all in, yeah. I thought when Chaz was talking on that Friday night after the TCBC retreat a couple of weeks ago in February, Chaz the Kapua, a teacher from IMS, was out here. And his talk was on the difference between discernment and judgment. And I find that that's a help, helpful thing. So every moment when some experience is coming up and being known, then the tendency of our normal, normally conditioned mind is to evaluate or judge the experience that's being known and to understand, okay, that's the habit, but there's a new habit we can cultivate, which is to discern, which is another way of saying be mindful of, but or embracing or being all in, as Rebecca just said. But th- that it's about understanding the experience, not about figuring out whether I like it or not, or whether it's good or not, but getting close, finding some way to get close, valuing that getting close, that all in. Thanks, Rebecca. Other thoughts? Working with Duca, Yeah, Caleb and then Julia. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about when you were talking about um, kind of in the, in the context of rebirth and how like dying doesn't like relieve suffering essentially. And I'm wondering if like if people really are relieving suffering, or if there really are people who have something to relieve. And I'm wondering like, if there are where are they and why are you talking about it? There aren't like people who are like in this life, on this planet, who are really suffering. Is that like really a reasonable goal? Or is it just a little bit of a Well let's find out. Okay, so be honest now. Over the course of your life, formal practice and just informally becoming a wiser human being, have you learned how to be with the ups and downs in life with more freedom, more lightness? So if you can if you can say yes to that, raise your hand. So it works. There is a way, and it's just a question of 
how good we are at understanding the way. So it's not sort of a stumbling, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but three steps forward and one step back. Maybe five steps forward and one step back. But I think even amongst people that appear to me to be very free, I I still think a lot of those folks are taking some steps back every once in a while because of the force of conditioning. But you know, once... Like I just for my own practice, Caleb. Once I see that the path really works, and once I I have deeper experience on those moments when there's no grasping, like really understanding the experience of no grasping, like what that is, then it's like something shifts where I don't mind so much being on the path toward freedom because I know it's already free. Like the experience of suffering, the shift is the experience of suffering is real, but it's not personal. And so it's a lot more tolerable. When I'm suffering, it's a lot more tolerable because I don't take it personally. I know it's there because of the force of habit, but I don't quite believe it as me or mine. It's still there, still feel heavy, but I don't quite own it in the same way. And that just moves more and more. And it gives me a lot of patience and resilience to just do the best I can to take my five steps forward or my two steps forward and my one step back. Julia, you get the last word. Um, well, I've been reflecting on <clears throat> during the sit when you were, what I heard was encouraging us to say yes uh, to whatever is predominant. And and so we went to that, and that was very helpful because I was noticing that, you know, I really wanted to be really quiet, right? to be really, really quiet in here, and these things be happening. So um, as things came up, I went towards them. Then I got thinking about, um, during my day today, I was facilitating um, an activity with a group of people, lots of people, uh, and one of the people wasn't doing what I wanted them to do. And, um, and so I continue to come back to that. Like during the sit, I was coming back to that again and again and, thinking, and reflecting on how to say yes to that. And in the moment, I did the, of course. Of course, I'm uncomfortable with this. I want this person to be doing it. But it's been really helpful tonight, every time you say this, to kind of go back to that time. just a little glimmer of a moment that brought such suffering. Yeah, it's just so um, disappointed. And, you know, but it was all about me. One person doing what I want them to do. Yeah. We're all here to do this together. But, uh, it's not about me. But, yeah. but this is exactly like would be great for next week is these little moments where we've learned something about the experience of suffering. And that's exactly... And then to start sharing them because it's cumulative. We're getting to know the experience. And then it's just less intimidating. The monsters we know well are not so monstrous. You know, it's the not knowing that's really scary. We have to leave it here. Thanks, everyone, for coming.